Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I know everybody in the room knows this, but for the sake of the folks on the internet, I hope that you in the room will bear with me for a moment. In this particular vocation and in this life, you don't get a whole lot of close friends. You don't get a whole lot of friends who can relate to the uh, trials and tribulations of what it is to be a preacher. Both the victories and the defeats are kind of hard to explain to people who don't do this for a living. So I've only had in this life uh, a handful of people who I was really close to and who I could talk to about this stuff, share this stuff. Elder Ward was certainly one of them, and I lost Elder a few years ago. And David Morris is certainly one of them, and everybody who's listened to GCA for any length of time has heard David here in our pulpit and heard me talk about David and the years of our friendship. But you have also heard the name Don Tyndall. And I met Don in excess of 20 years ago, probably 25 is closer. And we developed a a very nice, very cordial friendship at first, and then over time just became really close. And yesterday, we lost Don, and his heart gave up on him, and uh, he left this world. And to the person, the people that I spoke to about it, all said, If anyone deserves to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, he does. And so I just wanted to pass that along to the folks on the internet to give you some idea how close we were to Don. Of course, he has preached here at GCA for us. There are members of GCA these days who were pastored by Don Tyndall for 20 years. I was ordained in... Well, Cinco de Mayo, year 2000, and we had our first service in this building, June of 2001. And so I was ordained in the building where Don pastored at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. And for most of our life here in this building, since we don't have a baptistry here, whenever we had baptisms, we would go up to Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, and Don always gave us the uh, run of his building. And in fact, for many, many years, I carried a key to his building on my keychain because he just said, here, just my building's your building, go for it. So just very, very close. And then after the flood happened in Nashville, Leon replaced the basement floor at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. So we have this very close relationship between the two churches. And then Don retired a few years ago. And since then, we've had him here to preach a couple of times. And everybody has always enjoyed it because he is a Sovereign Grace preacher. And so the fact that he left the world yesterday, part of me is a bit jealous. (laughs) Part of me is happy that he is, he's happy today. He's, he's gone on to his reward. He's got all his questions answered today. And so... He's got a lot of questions. And there were a lot of questions, <laughs> and he got them all answered. So I just want the folks on the Internet to know that, that I've lost a couple of people now that I used to rely on when I needed to sort out the troubles of the world I could call Elder Ward or I could call Don and that just means I'm going to spend more time calling Barney and David and so they should be prepared for that. uh... All right, we are in Isaiah chapter 14, turn there. I told you last week and or the week before 
that this is the beginning of a section, the second big section of the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah turns his prophetic voice to the Gentile nations that surround Israel and that were persecuting Israel, many of whom never really saw these particular prophecies. These prophecies were given for the sake of Jerusalem, to encourage Jerusalem, and to let them know that God is so sovereign that he is even sovereign over the Gentile nations. This is the God who created heaven and earth. This is the God who is in charge of the universe and the entirety of his creation. But because he chose Israel, one of the names that he refers to himself by is as the God of Israel. So sometimes we think, well, there are different nations and they have different gods. And this particular one, Yahweh, is just the God of the Israelites. But in fact, he is the God of the whole wide world because he is the maker of the whole wide world. And he chose Israel, and so he is the God of Israel. But in this particular series of prophecies, we see God declaring his absolute lordship and sovereignty over the Gentile nations as well. And his dealings with the Gentile nations all have to do with his faithfulness to his chosen people. So it's a very consistent theology with everything that we see of God all the way through the Bible and in the New Testament that he is in charge of what happens on the planet. He's in charge of human history and he is directing it in such a way that it is ultimately beneficial to his people, to the people that he has called to himself. Which is why Paul could write things like all things work together for good to those who are the called, to those who God has called to himself, to them all things work together for good because God is sovereignly making sure that all things work the way he intends them to work and they work to the favor of his chosen people. Well, as we look at chapter 14, we left off last week at verse 23, and verse 24 starts right out with one of those grand declarations of absolute sovereignty. This is just like a Daniel 4.35 statement. We all know Daniel 4.35 when Nebuchadnezzar said that the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and God does all his will among the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, and there's no one who can stop his hand. There's no one who can say, what doest thou? That is a declaration of absolute sovereignty. God does whatever he wants. In the Psalms, we read, where is your God? David answers the question by saying, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. These kind of declarations of absolute sovereignty are even carried into the New Testament when you get to like Acts 11 and you read things like that the Jews and the Gentiles and Herod and Pilate were gathered together to do whatever your hand determined to be done. So even though the Gentile nations, the Jewish people were all gathered together and operated in opposition to Christ, they nevertheless ended up doing exactly what God foreordained they were going to do because the Christ had to die in order to redeem God's people. So again, the events of planet Earth redound to the ultimate good and glory of the people that God has chosen. So we keep seeing that idea over and over and over again. We see it declared doctrinally, but then we also see it laid out by example. So chapter 14 of Isaiah, verse 24 says, the Lord of hosts, that means the God of heaven and earth, the armies of heaven, the inhabitants of the earth, the God who's in charge of everyone, the Lord of hosts has sworn saying, surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. In that statement, God has just said, whatever has happened, it happened because that's what I intended to have happen. And whatever is going to happen is going to happen exactly like I planned it. And whatever I have planned, that plan is going to stand. 
that plan is going to continue on. So whether you're looking at the history of the world or whether you're looking at the future of the world, one thing you know for sure is that God is in charge. And whatever occurs in Jerusalem, but also whatever occurs within the Gentile nations is all under the hand of a completely sovereign God who does whatever he pleases. And because he is the only one who has that absolute freedom to do whatever he wants, whose will always comes to pass, because that's the state, none of us human beings with our very limited capacity can overthrow the plan of God who does whatever he wants and his plan always comes to fruition. We are incapable of changing the absolute sovereign will and determination of God and God defines himself by saying, whatever I've intended, that's what happened. And just like I planned it, so it will stand. Now that's coming right from God. So he is telling you what kind of God he is. I'm the God who is in charge of everything that takes place. Then knowing that about God, having defined himself that way, he then says to break Assyria in my land. Now, this is a theme that we're going to see continue to pop up every so often here in Isaiah. You already know what happened to the Assyrian army. They took the northern tribes, Israel, into captivity. But then they got as close as two miles from Jerusalem to the town of Nob, and then an angel killed 185,000 in one night. And then the king of Assyria had to go back where he came from. He had to go back to Nineveh, back to the capital of Assyria. That was always God's intention. As Isaiah is writing it, it had yet to happen. But God declares, because he's the God who always does whatever he wants to do, and whatever happens is exactly what he intended to have happen, it is his intention to break Assyria, very specifically, in my land, which is exactly where it happened in the land of Israel, right outside the gates of Jerusalem. They got that far, and then God broke them to break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains. Those are the mountains, the hills of Jerusalem, the surrounding area around Jerusalem. That is the exact place where God trampled Assyria. This is the plan says God, that is devised against the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out against all nations. So here is God declaring, whatever happens among the nations, whatever happens on the planet, among the Gentiles, among any other kings, any other dominions on the planet, whatever happens, it happened according to my hand. Whatever kings are raised up, whatever kings are taken down, whatever nations are lifted up, whatever nations are destroyed, it all happened according to my hand, which is why Daniel would say that nobody can stop his hand. The King James says, stay his hand. It means to stop him from doing what he wants to do, and nobody can say to him, what are you doing? What doest thou? Well, here he uses the exact same language through Isaiah to say, my hand is going to do whatever I want to do among the nations of the whole earth. And this is the hand, the hand of God that is stretched out against all nations. I'm the one who controls the nations of the earth. For the Lord of hosts has planned it and who can frustrate it? There he is declaring his absolute, complete, sovereign control over absolutely everything and basically saying, I'm God, you're not. I'm exceptionally sovereign, you're exceptionally not. And there's no way that you, the human, the worm, the gnat, the bug, there's no way that you are going to be able to overturn the absolute sovereign plan of God no matter who you are anywhere on the planet, once God has planned it, who can frustrate it? Mm. Nobody can change it. Right. Now, it's interesting that we just happen to be in this section at this particular moment in time because there's an election coming up. 
Next Tuesday, during men's meeting, when we'll be pretending to listen to Micah talk, but we'll be busy checking our phones <laughs> to find out how the election is going. But you know how it's going to work out? How God wants it to work out. I have been saying that for 20 years standing here at this pulpit. Whether it was George Bush or whether it was Barack Obama, whoever it was that ended up where they ended up, I said, you know what? God's going to get us through it. Because regardless, he is still in charge of it and he does all things for the benefit of his people. And you know, there was eight years of Barack Obama and we're fine. We're here. We're still preaching the gospel. We're still meeting. And that's going to be the same thing if it turns out that Joe Biden, no, well, if Kamala Harris turns out to be president. <laughs> if that happens, I'm sure that we who are looking at what's going on in the world, we're going to look at it and think, that's outrageous. How did that happen? But you know what? It, that would be then exactly what God determined was going to happen because that would take us closer to his ultimate end and his ultimate goal of bringing his son back. For who? For his people. Because human history is ultimately about God redeeming and protecting his people. And he controls the nations of the earth in order to bring about what is to his greatest glory and our greatest good. For the Lord of hosts has planned it and who can frustrate it. And he has stretched out his hand. So then who can turn it back? You're not big enough to stop God once he has stretched his hand out. Once he has made his determination and then brought it to pass, you're not big enough to fight with him. He's in the heavens. You're down here on the planet. It would just take one little virus to get into your nostril and you're going to be felled for weeks. He can drop you instantly. And yet nobody on the planet can withstand his hand or withstand his plan. He is going to do all of his intention, all of his goodwill. He's going to do whatever he wants to do. And that's what we mean when we say God is sovereign. That simple phrase, God is sovereign. It's why our sign says that we are a sovereign grace congregation. Because we are committed to the reality of the God who is explained in the Bible as being absolutely sovereign, who does whatever he's pleased to do, and nobody can stop him. And here we are again in Isaiah, seeing that very thing spelled out. That's why I began by saying, you can find it in Daniel. You can find it in the book of Acts. You can find it all the way through the Bible. You find these declarations in the Psalms. You find these declarations doctrinally in Paul's letters, in 1 Ephesians, which we'll be looking at in the weeks to come. You see over and over again, Old and New Testament, declarations of God's absolute sovereign control. And at some point, as you are converted to the reality of Christianity, at some point you have to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with that reality and bow the knee. At some point you have to recognize you're God, I'm not. You're in control, I'm not. You're in charge, I'm not. And whatever happens, whether that's the loss of a loved one, whether that's something that seemingly is just nightmarish in your life, whether that's difficulty, whether that's pain and disease, whether that's the loss of monetary ability. Okay, you lose your money. If anything goes on in your life, it is still in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God, who I'm going to say again, is working everything for his own glory, and you're good. And all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. And he's got a purpose behind everything he does. And his purpose here for Assyria was that he was going to trample them. He was going to crush them because now he's going to bring up Babylon. And he's going to use Babylon in order to punish his people, Jerusalem, for 70 years. 
But then he's going to bring up the Medo-Persians, as we saw last week. And he's going to use the Medo-Persians to crush Babylon so that he can then return his people back to Jerusalem so that they stay intact because the lion of the tribe of Judah has to actually come from Judah. So they have to remain intact. And he is already predicted to walk in God's temple at some point. So the temple still has to be built again. That all has to happen because the ultimate plan of God is at work. And yet all of these terrible things happen. There was a whole generation of Israelites who were very young when they were taken into Babylon or they were born in Babylon and lived the vast majority of their life under the boot of Babylon. And yet that was God's ultimate plan because God thinks in terms of whole world history, not just your three score and ten here on the planet and if you don't like that he doesn't care it's his plan he does whatever he's pleased to do therefore you bow the knee to his sovereignty because he's gonna do it anyway so all you can do is come to the point of worshiping the God who does whatever he's pleased to do does that make sense yes all right so let's put this together then The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. To break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them. Who is the them in that sentence? His people. The yoke of Assyria is going to be removed from his people and the burden of Assyria, his burden, is going to be removed from his people from their shoulder. And God is in charge of all of that. This is the plan that I have devised against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out against all nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned it and who can frustrate it? And as for his outstretched hand, who can turn it back? So there's God's declaration that he is going to protect his own people. And he is in charge of the Gentile nations because he's in charge of his creation. That takes us to verse 28. In chapter 6, because Isaiah is very good at giving us date stamps, He told us that in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw God high and lifted up, and that's when God gave him the commission that began his prophetic career. Now he's going to do the same thing in verse 28. In the year that King Ahaz died, that's the next successive king there in Judah. In the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came. King Ahaz died in 710 BC. So now we know, date stamp wise, exactly when Isaiah got this particular vision. This is a really interesting bit of vision coming up right here. Because sometimes Isaiah sees things that are going to happen in the relatively near future, but then as part of that prophecy, he sees things that are going to happen long term and in the last days. And I have stressed for several weeks that he sees it all as one big vision, all part and parcel of the same vision. And part of it will come to be in a matter of years, and part of it will come to be in a matter of decades, and part of it will come to be in a matter of centuries, at the end of time. This particular prophecy is three years away. And if he hadn't date stamped it, we wouldn't realize that this was actually a prophecy that he said, it. but it's just three years away. It's coming right around the corner. In fact, if you go forward to verse 14 of chapter 16, you'll see, but now the Lord speaks, saying, within three years, as a hired man would count them, in other words, an uneducated man, the way he would count years by the lunar calendar, by the moon moving, in three years, the glory of Moab will be degraded along with his great population and his remnant, and they will become very small and impotent. 
three years from now. Okay, so that means that Isaiah is telling the children of Jerusalem, this is one you can check. It's going to happen within your own lifetime. Moab has been a big problem for you as long as you've been in the promised land. But within three years, they're going to be completely impotent. Now, if that doesn't happen in three years, Isaiah is not a prophet. False prophet. And God has already said what you do with false prophets. So Isaiah is really putting his reputation on the line. He is so confident in what God has said that he's willing to go out and say, three years, this is going to occur. Now, on the east of Jerusalem, that's where you've got Ammon and Moab, the Moabites, and they have been a problem for Jerusalem as long as they've been there in the Promised Land. To the west of them... You've got Philistia and the Philistines. We read a lot about the Philistines. So you've got the Moabites on one side. You've got the Philistines on the other side. This particular series of prophecies is a judgment against Philistia and then a prophecy against Moab. And neither the Moabites nor the Philistines ever had the advantage of reading this prophecy. They didn't know that, oh, in three years, we're about to get wrecked. <coughs> Which means that the purpose for this prophecy was for Jerusalem, to reassure Jerusalem that God was for them. I mean, after all, they had just had the Assyrians come right to their front door, and God wiped them out in the night. Now they're scared about the Philistines on one side, the Moabites on the other. They've been making all these political alliances in order to protect themselves against the Assyrians and to protect themselves against the Egyptians. And so they're making all of these alliances, and God shows up again and says, I'm in so much control and so in favor of you, and I am going to protect you that you should have confidence in me, and I'm just going to keep pushing your enemies back. And you would think that at some point, the Jews would go, ah, oh, I get it. Okay, God's for us. If God be for us, who can be against us? Okay, I get it. But instead, they just kept rebelling and rebelling. And so God takes them into the captivity in Babylon. So starting at verse 29, we're going to read this judgment against Philistia. Now, Philistia consisted of the five lords of the Philistines who are described in the book of Joshua. If you want to go look up Joshua 13.3, you can read what I'm just about to tell you. They're also talked about in the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 6.17. They're comprised of Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza. In the southwestern Levant, just west of Jerusalem along the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And so in order for Jerusalem to even do any sea trading, they had to deal with the fact that the Philistines were right there along the shoreline. They've been subdued. This is important to understand to get this prophecy. The Philistines were subdued by King Uzziah. King Uzziah was very effective. And if you go back and you read 2 Chronicles 26.6, you can read that very thing. He's named Azariah there, but it's the same guy. It's King Uzziah. But then after he dies during the reign of Ahaz, the Philistines had taken back several of the towns that were in South Judea. And so now that king, Ahaz, has died. And so the Philistines are getting kind of raised up in pride. They're thinking, okay, King Uzziah took some of our cities and they kept us at bay. But then he died and Ahaz, who was not a very good king, wicked king, they were able then to conquer some of that land back and even take some of the cities there in southern Judea. And so they're thinking, we're going to do the same thing with the next king. This next king is Hezekiah. And they're thinking they're really going to show themselves during the time of Hezekiah. And so this prophecy is going to be, don't be rejoicing too much. Because God is about to lift up 
an even greater enemy against you and you're going to be crushed God condemned the Philistine cities for thinking that they were safe from destruction they were rejoicing that the rod that struck them was broken that's what we're about to read that probably refers to Israel generally or to Judah's king Ahaz but it might also refer to Assyria who had also been a rod that struck them Ashdod which is a Philistine city and Judah had revolted against Assyria but only four years after this particular article or this particular oracle Assyria defeated Ashdod and made Philistia into an Assyrian province that happened under Assyria's ruler Sargon II who lived from 722 to 705 so that gives you some idea of the time frame here and the death of King Ahaz falls right into that time frame so because of the death of Ahaz and because of the breaking of Assyria the Philistines were feeling their oats they were feeling good about themselves they felt like they were secure they felt like they were in safety but then they're going to suffer a defeat and they're going to be defeated by famine and they're going to be defeated by the sword so Philistia should wail since Assyria was coming on them like this uncontrollable cloud of smoke that's what we're about to read however Zion Jerusalem didn't need to fear for it was not going to fall until much later to Babylon that's in 586 BC okay that's all introduction did you follow all that I'm just trying to give you some background for what's happening in the Middle East at that moment verse 29 do not rejoice O Philistia all of you because the rod that struck you was broken they were celebrating that oh good King Ahaz is dead for from the serpent's root a viper will come out that's a Hebraism that basically means from this something worse is coming so you're happy that King Ahaz is dead I got bad news for you Hezekiah is coming and he's going to be harder on you than Ahaz was he's going to restore a lot of what King Uzziah had accomplished in fact 2nd Kings 18.8 talks about that very thing you don't have to turn there I'll just read it to you for a moment 2nd Kings 18 I'm going to start reading at verse 7 it says it's talking about Hezekiah the king for the Lord was with him wherever he went he prospered and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and he did not serve him and he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from the watchtower to the fortified city that means everything in between now it came about in the fourth year of King Hezekiah which was the seventh year of Hoshea son of Elah king of Israel that Shalmaneser king of Assyria came up against Samaria and besieged it and at the end of three years they captured it and in the sixth year of Hezekiah which was the ninth year of Hosea king of Israel Samaria was captured then the king of Assyria carried Israel away into exile into Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Habor on the river Gozan in the city of the Medes because they did not obey the voice of their Lord God but they transgressed his covenant even all that Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded them they would neither listen nor indeed do it so here we get the motivation for what happened Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria God takes credit for that and says the reason that that happened was because they didn't obey the voice of their Lord their God and they transgressed his covenant so God used the king of Assyria to carry Israel away into exile in Assyria but in the midst of all that the Lord was also with Hezekiah and he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and all its territories well that's exactly what Isaiah is predicting here second Kings actually records it as history Isaiah predicts it as prophecy have I confused anybody yet mm -hmm. have I lost anyone okay 
Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you, because the rod that struck you is broken, for from the serpent's root a viper will come out, and its fruit will be a flying serpent. And those who are the most helpless will eat, and the needy will lie down in security. And I will destroy your root with famine, and I will kill off all your survivors. So those people who had been kept under bondage from Philistia, who had been always at war, who were the ones who were poor, who were downtrodden, the needy, were going to lay down finally in security because God was going to destroy the Philistines. So then verse 31, wail, O gate. The gate was always the place in the city where the high and the mighty would meet, where judgments would take place. Wail, O gate, cry, O city, melt away, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes from the north. That's a reference to Assyria coming down from the north so massive that it's like smoke or the dust of the horses rising up in the air that look like smoke. For smoke comes down from the north and there is no straggler in his ranks. In other words, they're a mighty army. There's nobody who's just phoning it in. It's going to be a slaughter. For smoke comes from the north and there is no straggler in his ranks. How then will one answer the messengers of the nation that the Lord has founded Zion and the afflicted of his people will seek refuge in it? That's a bit of historic Middle Eastern reality that as Assyria came down on the Philistines there were Philistines who ran from their territory seeing that Judah was in safety and ran and tried to make a deal with them would you please let us come and live with you he predicted it and it actually occurred how's one going to answer the messengers of the Philistines when they come For the Lord has founded Zion, and the afflicted of his people will seek refuge in it. Chapter 15, then, is an oracle concerning Moab. So now he's dealt with the people on the west and on the seashore. Now he's going to deal with the people on the east. The next two chapters of Isaiah all have to do with Moab. Now, for centuries, Moab, which lay at the east side of the Dead Sea had been an enemy of Israel in Israel's wilderness wanderings. There were Moabite women who seduced Israel's men. You can read about that in Numbers 31. In the time of the judges, Israel was oppressed by Moab for 18 years. You can read about that in Judges 3. Saul fought with Moab. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 14. David defeated Moab. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 8. Solomon was influenced by his wives to build an altar to the Moab god who was named Chemosh. You can read about that in 1 Kings 11. Mesha, who was Moab's king, had to pay tribute to Ahab, the king of Israel. You can read about that in 2 Kings 3. After Ahab died in 853 BC, Mesha rebelled against Joram, who is also known as Jehoram, But he was ultimately defeated. You can read about that in 2 Kings 3. The destruction of Moab described in Isaiah 15 and 16 here caused the Moabites, who were under an attack from Assyria, to flee south into Edom. And so the major question that has to do with this particular prophecy we're about to read is when exactly the oracle would have been written Because the final paragraph says that the judgment was going to come to Moab within three years if we take at face value in the year that King Ahaz died, then this oracle came. It would have meant that during the first year of Hezekiah, this prophecy came forward. It would have been in the fourth year of Hezekiah that this actually occurred. But calendar-wise, that all actually happened. (laughs) actually occurred proving yet again that this really is prophecy 
This is God declaring judgment against foreign nations who at the time were very powerful, and within three years, he crushed them. And why did he do it? For the sake of Judah, his people. It's really remarkable stuff. The more you dig into the details of this, the more you see that God was sovereignly controlling Middle Eastern history the same way that he has controlled the history of planet Earth ever since. By the way, if you were to read the 48th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, you'll read much of this same stuff, same details, much of the same language in his prophecy against Moab. All right, so let's have a look at this. Now, I'm just going to try as hard as I can to just read it out with minimal explanation. Yeah, good luck. Um, just so that we can get through these two chapters. Because in the end, the interpretation of the small details is secondary to the big picture, which is what I've been trying to drive tonight. The big picture is God said he was going to do it. He started out by declaring whatever I say is going to happen. And then he declared it, and it did happen. And the more you understand that big picture, the more your faith will be built and your confidence will be sustained in the God who's in charge of everything, which should give you confidence that you're going to be all right regardless of what happens next week, next month, next year. The God who is in charge of everything has got your back. So if you take away nothing else from these next two chapters, take that. The oracle concerning Moab. Surely in a night, a single night, Ar of Moab is devastated and ruined. Now I should tell you there are several cities of Moab that are going to be named here. They're not cities that we're familiar with. They're cities, some of which have just disappeared into history. I can tell you that Moab, that area, is right now part of Jordan. If you were to look at a modern map and you look at Jordan, that's where Moab essentially was. Surely in a night, Ar of Moab is devastated and ruined. Surely in a night, Kir of Moab is devastated and ruined. They have gone up to the temple and to Dibon, even to the high places, to weep. In other words, they've gone to their gods. And nothing helps them. Because the gods who are not cannot defend you against the god who is. Moab wails over Nebo and Mediba. Everyone's head is bald and every beard is cut off. Those are signs of shaving your head out of grief. In their streets, they have girded themselves with sackcloth, signs of repentance. And on their housetops and in their squares, everyone is wailing, dissolved into tears. Heshba and Eliele also cry out. Their voice is heard all the way to Jahaz. And therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles within him. My heart cries out for Moab. This is now Isaiah speaking first person, seeing the level of destruction the amount of death, the amount of famine, the amount of bloodshed that there's going to be in Moab. Isaiah here gives you a little sense of who he is as a person, that he doesn't take joy in this. He doesn't celebrate this. His heart goes out to them because the God who no one can stop is against them. My heart cries out for Moab. His fugitives are as far as Zoar and Eglath Shalashayah. For they go up the ascent of Luhith, weeping. Surely on the road to Haranam, they raise a cry of distress over their ruin. For the waters of Nimrin are desolate. Surely the grass is withered. The tender grass died out. There is no green thing. Therefore the abundance which they have acquired and stored up they carry off over the brook of Arabim. For the cry of distress has gone around the territory of Moab. Its wail goes as far as Eglaim, and its wailing even to Beer Elim. 
for the waters of Dimon are full of blood. Surely I will bring added woes upon Dimon, a lion upon the fugitives of Moab and upon the remnant of the land. In other words, if the war doesn't get you, the wild animals will. One way or the other, you're falling under the judgment of God. Then chapter 16, the reason for the division in the middle of this ongoing oracle is because of chapter 16, you see the Moabites doing what the Philistines did. They start trying to make a deal with Jerusalem. Like you seem to be at safety and your God is protecting you. What if we come stay with you? Send the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land. In other words, they're trying to say to the king, they're saying to Hezekiah, look, oh, we're going to do tribute to you now. Just let us come live among you. From Selah, by the way of the wilderness, to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Then like fleeing birds or scattered nestlings, the daughter of Moab will be at the fords of the Arnon, and they will say, give us advice. Make a decision. Cast your shadow like night at high noon. In other words, cover us. Protect us. Hide the outcast. Do not betray the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab stay with you. Be a hiding place to them from the destroyer. For the extortioner has come to an end and destruction has ceased. Oppressors have completely disappeared from the land. They're describing Jerusalem. They're saying, you don't have any oppressors. You, Assyria came down and tried to oppress you, but they've ceased. They came down and tried to extort you. They've come to an end. So you're at safety, so let the outcasts of Moab come stay with you. Verse 5. All of a sudden, it gets very messianic. And Isaiah does what he does so frequently in the midst of describing things that are going to happen just three years away. He suddenly jumps hundreds of years in advance and speaks about the Messiah to come because he can't describe the goodness of Zion without making reference to the Messiah that's going to come from Zion. A throne will be established in loving kindness and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. And then he goes back to talking about Moab immediately. Isaiah just can't help himself but talk about messianic future for Zion, for Jerusalem. But notice, yet again, here he is talking about the judgments and the promises of God And it's within that context that, yet again, he brings up Christ. He brings up the one who is from the the lineage of David, who is going to sit on a throne of righteousness that's going to be established there in Jerusalem. And he does that within the context of judgment and promises to Moab. So you can see why in the New Testament, you would read that in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Because the prophets have already said these are the promises of God, but they're going to be accomplished through this Christ who's coming, through the Messiah, through the Son of David. So that is a theological reality that's established all the way back here at the prophets. It's just simply recognized in the New Testament. It's not some new invention or declaration in the New Testament. It's a simple recognition that God has made promises and that all those promises always come true through the one who is the yes and the amen of God. So when we say everybody who is saved is saved through Christ, Old or New Testament, we we say there's not two different ways of salvation. We say all salvation is through Christ. It's because of moments like this, where Christ is introduced into the conversation as Jerusalem is talked about in their glorious future. A throne will even be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. And moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt, be immediate in his righteousness. 
We have heard of the pride of Moab. There we go again. So what was the downfall of Assyria? Pride. Pride. What was the downfall of the Philistines? Pride. Pride. What's the downfall of Moab? Pride. How often do you have to see that before you recognize the consistency of God's declarations against prideful men and prideful nations? We have heard of the pride of Moab, an excessive pride, even of his arrogance, his pride and his fury and his idle boasts. They're false. Therefore, Moab shall wail. Everyone of Moab shall wail. You shall moan for the raisin cakes of Kir Haresheth as they were utterly stricken, as those who are utterly stricken. Raisin cakes would be the delicacies. When you were living at peace in your capital cities, you would eat these delicacies, and you're going to be moaning and wailing, and you're going to be looking for the good old days when you used to live at peace and comfort and eat whatever you wanted. For the fields of Heshbon have withered, the vines of Sibma as well. The lords of the nations have trampled down its choice clusters, which reached as far as Jazer and wandered to the deserts. Its tendrils spread themselves out and passed over the sea. Therefore, I will weep bitterly for Jazer, for the vine of Sibma. I will drench you in my tears, O Heshbon and Elielah, for the shouting over your summer fruits and your harvest has fallen away, and gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field, and in the vineyards also there will be no cries of joy or jubilant shouting. No treader treads out the wine in the presses, for I have made the shouting to cease. Therefore, my heart intones like a harp for Moab. Here again is the character, the nature of Isaiah. As he's saying these terrible things to the nations, as he's foreseeing the destruction, the bloodshed that is coming their way, he has a heart for them. He recognizes that there's going to be a tremendous amount of human suffering. So he says, my heart intones like a harp for Moab and my inward feelings for Kir Haraseth. So it will come about when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself upon his high places, and comes to his sanctuary to pray, that he will not prevail. In other words, that phrase, when he presents himself, it means when he comes to his places of worship and presents himself before his gods. When he wearies himself, when he just prays night and day until he can't do it anymore, begging his gods to protect him. When he comes into his sanctuary to pray, he's not going to prevail. Why? Because he's praying to gods that aren't gods. He's praying to the works of his own hands. He's praying to wood and stone and metal. They're not praying to the real God, the God who's sovereign, the God who's in control, the God who does whatever he wants to do, the God who's in control of all nations. Instead, God is demonstrating the complete futility, the complete emptiness of every God who is not him. And they will weary themselves, and it will come to nothing. He will not prevail. This is the word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab. But now the Lord speaks, saying, Within three years, as a hired man would count them, the glory of Moab will be degraded, along with all his great population, and his remnant will be very small and impotent. Now let me show you one more thing. Turn over to the book of Jeremiah for just a moment. Jeremiah 48 So far, it sounds like a tremendous calamity coming down on Moab and a pretty utter destruction, a complete destruction. Chapter 48 of the book of Jeremiah, I mentioned earlier, it is all about the destruction of Moab. And the language is very, very similar. It's a long chapter. I'm not going to read it. 
But even Jeremiah says in verse 36, therefore my heart wails for Moab like flutes. Isaiah said, my heart is like a harp for them. Jeremiah said, it's like flutes. My heart wails like flutes for the men of Kir Hares. Therefore, they have lost the abundance that they have produced. For every head is bald and every beard is cut short. And there are gashes on their hands and there is sackcloth on their loins. And on the housetops of Moab and in all the streets, there is lamentation everywhere For I have broken Moab like an undesirable vessel, declares the Lord. How shattered it is. How they have wailed. How Moab has turned his back. He is ashamed. So Moab will become a laughingstock and an object of terror to all that are around them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, one will fly swiftly like an eagle and spread out his wings against Moab. And then the continuation is terror and pit and snare are coming upon you, O inhabitant of Moab. The one who flees from the terror will fall into the pit, and the one who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. Boy, there's just no escaping that. For I will bring upon her, even upon Moab, the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. So that sounds like an utter and complete destruction of Moab if it weren't for the fact that Jeremiah adds this one little fact. Start at verse 46. Woe to you, Moab. The people of Chemosh have perished. For your sons have been taken away captive and your daughters into captivity. Verse 47. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab. When? In the latter days, declares the Lord, and thus far is the judgment of Moab. Jeremiah dangles this last little piece out there (coughs) that God is going to restore the fortunes of Moab because the surrounding nations around Jerusalem one day are all going to have to come up to the mountain of Jerusalem and they're going to have to worship the God of the Israelites. And so when it is time for them to do that, God is going to restore Moab. During the time of the great tribulation, the people who are in Jerusalem are told to flee into the wilderness, into Ammon and Moab and Edom. So those land places still existed. God still knew where they were when Jesus was on the planet. And they were places that had been abandoned. Why were they abandoned? So that the Israelites will have a place to run when God finally pours out punishment there on that area of the world. The Jews are going to have a place to run and hide in safety because the Antichrist, we find out from the book of Daniel, is not going to get to Edom or Moab or Ammon. So this is all the divine plan of God. Israel, the Jews, are going to be hiding in Moab. And God promises, I'm going to restore the fortunes of Moab. Why? His people are there. You see, even as God takes nations down, he promises them restoration always for the good of his people, in protection of his people. And if that's the God who you worship, if that's the God who you pray to, then you can have a tremendous amount of confidence because he has this tremendous historic record of doing whatever he wants to do and yet never once failing his people. So then again, if you are among his people, if he is your God and that's who you are, Counting on, that's who you have faith in. Then you can have every confidence that that God is going to get you all the way home. And there is nothing in this world that can get between you and that God because nobody can stop his hand and no one can say, what are you doing? And part of what he is doing is protecting you. If God be for you, who can be against you? And he has already proven it historically and prophetically over and over and over and over again. We should have complete confidence and complete faith in that God because he has demonstrated his faithfulness to his own word over and over again. And he has 
demonstrated his absolute sovereignty and his control over human history and how he utilizes that power for the good of his people. He's demonstrated it over and over and over and over it again. So you would think that we would walk through this life confidently knowing that that's the God who's got our back. Mm -hmm. That's the God who cares about us and is going to get us home. Yeah? Yes. yes. Okay, I was going to say amen, but you know, we don't do that here. So I went with yeah. <laughs> but I like the fact that Isaiah, even as he's declaring the destruction of Assyria and the Philistines and Moab, in the midst of all that, he's declaring the absolute faithfulness of sovereign God. It's just wonderful stuff. All right, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the word and study the sovereign grace of God.